Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And welcome into the fourth and final hour of our four-hour block of outdoor programming. Heard every Saturday morning, this being Hunt Fish Talk Week, and we have Wendy Billiot, the Bayou Woman, Keith Lusher, North Shore Fishing Report guru with us, and we're glad to have you. Uh, we are going to talk about some issues today. Uh, first of all, we're going to start off talking about the, the declaration of emergency that modified the deer urine products ban. And that's a whole lot of mouthful, but it's pretty much a simple regulation. We'll run that down for you, and then we'll discuss its merit or whether it's overkill for this upcoming deer season. Also, Louisiana Outdoor Riders Association held its convention, conference, whatever you want to call it, last week in Morgan City. Louisiana Outdoor Rider Association being an organization that is uh, composed of writers, broadcasters, photographers, videographers, uh, podcasters, uh, social media, anyone who is in the field of outdoor communications, uh, a certain criteria to become a member. And this organization has been around now for a long, long time, many, many decades. I've been a member since 1984. Um, and we have this convention once a year, and at it, uh, we have several events that take place, uh, contests that are sponsored by Louisiana Outdoor Riders Association, and we want to let you know what those are and how you can, as the public, get involved in it. Uh, we're also, being that we recently returned, at least Wendy and I did, from, and Martha Spencer and Chris Lecoq from our Cajun invasion of Alaska, uh, discussions came up about some of the rules and regulations that Alaska has in place to manage their fishery and comparing those with those of Louisiana. A lot of differences, some similarities, some I like, some I don't like, and we'll kind of kick those around. So let me welcome in our fellow panelists, uh, Wendy, the Bayou Woman, Alaska veteran, Wendy Billiot. Hey, Wendy, how you doing? <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> I'd like to say I'm happy to be back, but I'm not sure that I am. <laughs> are you, I mean, not on the show. Are you recovered from, yet? You, you you seem still disoriented last weekend. Are you are you finally back into Louisiana mode? I have to admit, um, that trip to Alaska is really not for the faint of heart, <laughs> at, le- at least when you're uh, close to our age, Don. Or for I the mean, faint of body, a- either. Or for the faint of no, body. It's tough. No, it's true. You definitely hit the ground running, and if you do every day of the five days of fishing, I really think it would take at least a week to recuperate once you get back home. But what has kept going through my mind since I returned, was it last Wednesday, Wednesday a week ago, is is that song, that old John Denver song, Rocky Mountain High. Well, in my mind, it just keeps, you know, repeating around, Kenai River High, Kenai River High, and it's the truth. It's it's just like one of those mountaintop experiences. You come back and you just kind of go, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just not ready for that to be over with. And the other, I know yeah, I'm strange, I, I, but the other thing that kept going through my mind is, you know, there's no place like home. Well, there's no place like Alaska. And if I had red ruby slippers, I think I would, or hip boots, okay? 
okay to come together and just say, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, but, you know, you can take me back to Alaska anytime. I'm ready. Well, except in the winter, okay? That but be- the weather was gorgeous. Uh, we could that not would- have asked for better. There was not a drop of rain. It was, you know, started out in the 50s in the morning and warmed up to the 70s with a cool breeze, and they thought it was hot, and I laughed hysterically. You don't know what hot is, people, until you come down here and you're in your 90s with 100% humidity. <laughs> it was like absolute heaven, absolute. Yeah. Well, talking about the uh, not for the faint of heart, I mean, the air travel can kill you, you know, just just the fact that it took 36 hours to get there. Now, that's not the usual case. I've been I've done it 13 times out of 14 years. That has been going on, and this is the first time I've ever had that much difficulty. So we're going to kind of put that on the side. But uh, well, anyway, know, that was a great trip. I'm glad but to I have you with at, us. And... Sorry, Don. I, I don't know what happened to you. I mean, I took off at 5.30 a.m. and got there at 1 p.m. What's, what's the problem? Yeah, we know. We know. <laughs> we know. We heard about it. We don't want to hear about it again. Well, Keith, uh, good to have you in. Good seeing you at the uh, the Outdoor Writer Association convention. Thanks for coming out there, and uh, thanks for being part of the show. I was fishing in, in your neck of the woods, close to our home uh, this week. I went and made a trip for uh, White Perch on Tickfall River, and then uh, with the phenomenal Jeff Brew, we did some marsh bass fishing right there on Salt Bayou yesterday. So kind of covered the eastern, the western uh, spans of uh, the North Shore. All spectrums, huh? How'd you guys do as far as the tick fall? Uh, believe it or not, we went out there against my better judgment at 10 o'clock, okay, and you know what the heat's been, and fished uh-huh. at twelve fifteen, and put 20 nice big slab keepers in the boat, plus uh, one goggle eye, threw back some sockle threw back a couple small goggle eye, and I hooked uh, probably a 12-pound or better yellow cat that fought him to the net and when he saw the net made one shake and he was gone <laughs> but um i don't know yeah, the guy i was fishing and... with he's a, he yeah we were we were fishing in 10 feet of water uh, over yeah, the top yeah. of structure with small uh tube jigs and the guy mm-hmm. that i was fishing with he's put a lot of time and a lot of effort into studying that river he knows it he knows how to fish it and uh, he's probably the best at it that I know. And he said he's, it's, he's acquired that from other people, old-timers that have given him some education and information about how to fish it and really produced really well. But, you know, to me, you know, white perch fishing, if you go outside of the spawn in the spring when the water's fairly cool, they are tough to find because they, they want to stratify, they gang up, and there's a lot of river bank to track and to know where you're going and how to fish it and have the confidence in it was uh, was really a treat to fish with the guy. Frank Dunmore is his name, and he's one of these eclectic guys. He fishes everything from brim all the way out to uh, tuna offshore and uh, had a great trip with him. And then right there in Salt Bayou by Mike Gallo's camp, we were meeting with Gerald Gaspard to take a look at the, the new line of Berkeley products. And we got there early and had about an hour to fish and we picked up some nice bass. We were cruising along the bank and saw some mullets and a little activity and threw some top water stuff in there and nailed a couple of nice marsh bass. So it was a good, good trip, both of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that area is great for those little marsh bass. And that goes, you know, when you go fishing down there, you think basically salt water. But I tell you what, it's it's loaded with salt, uh, with marsh bass right there. And that, that launch has been uh, out of commission for a while, too. So it's kind of hard to 
for those bass anglers to get in there. So that population might be building up in, in Salt Bayou. Oh, I'm sure it. I'm sure it has all through southeast Louisiana because of the Mississippi River coming through the Bonnie Carry and deposit and just tons of bass in there. Um, but getting back to that launch, that little Salt Bayou launch, the launch is usable. But if somebody wants to go there, I got to warn them. There's hardly any parking there. There's a lot of big equipment still there, and if you got a trailer hooked on the truck, you're going to have a hard time finding a place to park. But you can put the boat in there and pull it out. It's unobstructed there. We ended up going to Wrigley's and launching over there and just mm-hmm. made the run back. Yeah. Don, I'd like to add something. Okay, uh, well, we get. Saw, saw Wendy come at the Cajun Coast Visitor Center when, when we were welcomed into Morgan City. She walks out to me. I said, well, how was your trip? She says, Don is tough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but when someone, I heard this is still a rumor, but I heard someone ask Wendy, are you sure you're going to be up for this? And her comment was, well, if Don can do it, I can do it. Is that true, Wendy? <laughs> um, I have to say that I that I was not able to keep up with Don and Martha because I chickened <laughs> out on the, on the long, long, long offshore trip in Seward. I just, I just had... Had enough at that point, uh, but I did fish again after that. But, however, um, yeah, Don, I don't know how you do it, man. I, I mean, Keith, we missed you. I, I wish you and your lovely wife, you know, could have been there, and I hope you can go one time in the future. But I just want to tell everyone listening, if you have not gone to one week, and this is offered two for two, two, two one-week sessions at the end of July and early August, uh, Cajun Invasion is one week long, five days of fishing, two days of travel, if you're fortunate. And the hosts <laughs> at the Gone Fishing Lodge go above and beyond. They've got everything worked out for you. I mean, all you have to do is hop in the vehicle and go and hop in the boat or hop in the seaplane or step in the river, and it's just go, go, go pretty much from the minute your feet hit the ground. So, um, you know, it's daylight when you go to bed, but you're so tired, it really doesn't matter because chances are you're going to be up at 3 a.m. And, and going again. But it's worth it. It's really worth it. But I really did mean it when I said, Don, you're tough. I mean, I don't know how you do it. Five days of nonstop fishing action. And, and it is fishing action. It definitely is. And several different kinds and lots and lots of fun. So if you ever have the opportunity to go on a week of the Cajun Invasion, I would highly encourage you to do it. It is a trip of a lifetime. You know, I also have uh, two business partners in Bayou Wild TV that like to sleep early mornings on a drive. They can sleep in a vehicle. So guess who gets to drive to Seward and Homer and all those different places? In fact, I had to make the drive in from... Yeah, yeah. Now, they drive back, you know, but I I can't sleep in a vehicle, so it doesn't make any difference to me. Well, look, while we're talking about Alaska, let's take a break and let's kind of switch our agenda around. And I want to talk about those regulations in Alaska as opposed to some in Louisiana and get your thoughts on them. Who has it right? Who has it wrong? Are they both correct? We'll be back to do that. You listen to Hunt Fish Talk. Wendy Billiot, Keith Lusher, I'm Don Dubuque. Good Saturday morning. And welcome back in. We're talking about Alaska, just having returned from our, <clears throat> the 14th annual Cajun invasion. 
Next year will be 15 years. And, Wendy, uh, the phone has been ringing off the hook, people texting, wanting contact numbers. And I think Ralph may have to make this a three-week Cajun invasion if all of these people that are expressing interest are booking into it. It's just been an awful lot of response to this year's, and I'm sure it's because we've, you know, we've added the Bayou woman, and now that she's been there and puts it out the publicity, people <laughs> want to imitate what she does. So, anyway, well, we'll welcome everyone. Look to come. Up you don't gone. even have to be a Cajun. They, uh, yeah, they can definitely look up Gone Fishing, not without an OG, Gone Fishing Lodge in, in Saldotna and find the website. But the key is to not uh, book last minute like I did, but book early so that all those great folks from Utah don't take our empty spaces. I, I'm sure that they would love nothing <laughs> better to have nothing but Cajuns fill up those two weeks. Um, met some wonderful uh, folks from Eunice. It just, I, I just can't say enough good. I could talk a whole hour about Alaska, okay? I could. I could just go on and on and on ad nauseum. Everybody around here, they avoid me in the grocery store. I'm like, oh, here she comes again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's pulling out her iPhone. Run! <laughs> the glacier woman. Yeah, well, you know, we got. Yeah, well, I want to invite people, too, if they missed it, uh, check out the Fish and Game Report from this week. It's on my website, and uh, it's on WWL's website and WBRZ's. We were doing that uh, that flossing or lining, which, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that because we want to talk about the regulations in Louisiana versus Alaska. You know, um, one of the things, and Wendy, I'm going to run down some that I saw and, and how I feel about them, and you do the same on any others or the same ones, and then we'll get Keith to comment. But, you know, one thing we do here in Louisiana, and it's it's actually technically not correct, but it's like party limits, okay? Uh, us three go fishing offshore, and we come back in with six red snappers, 16 inches or longer. Nobody's going to give us any problems if, in fact, uh, Wendy reeled up one of my fish. She might have caught three. I might have caught one. Maybe we split the pole. We passed it back and forth or something like that. Uh, and it's similar with the other species, too, even like ducks. Uh, you know, you come in and you've got the equal number of limit for the number of people that you've got. There's not a whole lot said about it. And I, I imagine in some cases if it was really blatant where someone was bringing a, a, a toddler with them and bringing back big fish and saying they caught theirs and they were the limit, that might be a little beyond the boundaries. But over there, they're very tough. At least my experience has been most of the charter captains. Uh, they take your license when you get aboard the boat. You don't get it back till you get off. They mark off the fish that you catch. And they do not allow people to split the, the – you can share the rod, but whoever touches it first, it's their fish, and it comes off of their limit. And they don't allow you to help another person if you've already got your limit and give it to them. If you end up being the first one to, to, to catch that fish or start catching that fish, you got to release it if you've already got your limit. And I had a, we had a prime case where I pulled in a 60-pound halibut after I already had my, uh, my over – 28 inch and you only allowed one over 28 and uh had to turn it loose and we had people that were sick on the boat that didn't have fish so that's quite a bit different the other thing is you know we were fishing on those those red salmon which just real quick explanation you have to run the line through their mouth they're not a, a feeder they, they're basically a vegetarians so you can't get them to attack baits so they're plentiful in the river, they're moving upstream, and you run the line through, and then you, you basically set the hook 
and this is all sight unseen because you can't see them, but you just kind of know they're there. If you hook them in the mouth and you fight the fish to the net, it's good catch. It's yours. It can be one of your three. They increased the limit to six. For a while, it was even nine. That was so plentiful this year. It went back down to six while we were there. But you can keep the fish. But if you catch the fish, snag it in the tail, dorsal fin, side, which happened to me on one, you got to release the fish. You, you're not allowed to keep it. And, and I don't really understand the reasoning beyond that. Um, you have no control of where you jerking this actually snagging is what you would call it if you're lucky enough to snag it in the mouth why should you keep it if it's the same technique the same level of skill and you hook it in a dorsal fin and you catch it you got to let it go um those things there were, were, were two of the ones that just really jump out at me and, and wendy uh you have any others that that you notice that are quite a bit different from what we do here in louisiana um I noticed that they have a great respect for the rules and regulations, although I never saw a um, fish and wildlife agent while I was there. Did you? I Think haven't seen one in 13 years of going. But 13 yet, years of going. Never, never, yet, never seen one have been checked, but yet the, they, they the adhere to those regulations. Very, Yes, they're very respectful of those rules and regulations, and even to the point that um, my first day was the halibut trip in Cook Inlet, and we had a young captain, and um, that's the first thing he did, as you said. He wanted everyone's licenses before we even loaded our gear on the boat and had them stacked up on the console, and he had to you know, record the date, record our, our catch, um, sign off on it, but he also had a very thick logbook on his um, console with triplicates in, in triplicate, and he has to fill that out for for every trip. And I think probably all that record keeping. I mean, it holds them accountable um, to make sure that they're following the rules and regulations. And I can only see that all of that is toward conservation of the species whatever it happens to be that day and he was he was emphatic that oh yes i have to keep these records precisely and to the t and he has to turn a copy in so i don't know if all the other species were as strict as halibut he but he's definitely highly regulated on his paperwork that he had to submit for his halibut trips and it's accountability i guess so there's not a whole lot of room for um, fudging, you know what I'm saying, for for fudging any of those numbers because their license numbers are recorded. I mean, that, that log was a, was a serious book of information. Had you seen that? Oh, yeah, and, um, you know, I don't know whether they're putting undercover people on the boats or maybe they were a little, of course, you didn't have a camera on yours. I thought maybe it was because we had a, a, a camera and everything was being documented on video, but... Uh, I've experienced that with other captains there. They either they take a very, uh, you know, personal uh, give personal attention to the to, to the rules and the laws, and they really believe in them as good management practices, or they're scared to death of getting caught because they're going to hang them. I don't know which it is, but for whatever reason, they're very tight on the regulations, and they're basically, when you think about it, doing the job of enforcement officers because they're they're not going to let you fish if you don't produce a license, a good current license. 
And, uh, you know, I think that's a good point. But, Wendy, what about the, the foul hooking and the snagging okay. and the lining? And evidently, I wasn't with you on your trip, but you got to be pretty good at it because you came back to the lodge with a limit very quickly on that. But did y'all hook any? Uh, you witnessed my, my fiasco where the real handle <laughs> broke, and I had one hooked in the side, and Martha it. was hand lining, and I'm wrapping it around the spool and all of that foolishness. What is your thoughts about having to release a fish unless you snag it in the mouth? Snagging in the tail, dorsal fin, or side, it has to be released. I had great experience with that, as a matter of fact. I can, I can only um, presume that that is also a conservation effort, and I hadn't thought about it. But on my trip back home, <clears throat> I ran into a doctor um, I think in San Francisco Airport, who had been up there fishing also. And he asked me what I enjoyed the most, and I told him flossing because it was challenging. It was um, a, lot of, a lot of activity, and he said, I don't do that. And I said, why not? He said, because I think it's just unfair to the fish because they're only doing what nature tells them to do. They're swimming upstream, and you're casting out there, and you're <laughs> – and you're hooking them, and I said, "Well, if if that's your attitude, then all of fishing is unethical because we're always luring them with a hook, you know, one way or the other. Yeah, we've got a little like, bit like of a, eating of an is un- not something that nature requires. Yeah, you know that eating yeah. is an abnormal uh, function of a fish. Yeah, that, that's a yeah. little bit hoity-toity. I think I think so, somewhere that. down the line that that had to have a bad experience that set that rule into into place. You know. Okay. So, I had a really good guide. We were, I mean, that was my favorite trip because it was only a short drive to the dock and it was only like a five-minute boat ride, and we were fishing in no time. And I foul-hooked four. Now, I had a couple others that just jumped off the hook, but I actually foul-hooked four. And after, and they're not easy to land, I laughed because no. uh, somebody hollered, "You got to stop with that, with that uh, Cajun quick jerk. You got to keep the tip <laughs> of that line down. You got to keep that line down." And Keith can tell you, I acted it out for him Friday night at the social. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure people were standing around laughing at what I was doing, but I was trying my best to show him. It's very, very challenging. It's got to be a conservation method because it's just a passive way of catching fish and to emphasize for the readers you you sling that line overhead to 12 o'clock and you sweep that tip over the surface of the water to like 10 o'clock and then you jerk the rest of the way and hopefully you snag the salmon in the mouth and when you do the run is on or the fight is on and you get to see everybody standing in line dancing that's the fun part, especially when the line wraps around your, your neighbor's legs. But I was disappointed when I foul-hooked the four, you know, after all that. You know, you finally get them in that, oh, it's in the dorsal fin. Oh, it's in the tail, oh, you know. And that's disappointing, but there is a rhythm to it. And eventually, I could actually feel the hook touching the salmon. I could actually feel it. And, Don, I, don't, I, I imagine that you could, too. And I, I, I told Martha, I said, Martha, you just have to become one with the salmon. You just have to 
<laughs> Imagine yourself as the salmon running upstream. But I loved it. I absolutely it was my favorite thing of the entire yeah. trip was flossing. I yeah. absolutely flossing. loved it. I could have done well, two days not, of that. Flossing seems like it's something that somebody's either going to really like or really going to hate. <laughs> Right, if right, you, right. When they're thick, don't. like they were this year, it's fun. But let me tell you, when you throw 500 times and maybe yeah. get one if you're lucky, and it's not quite so much fun. Now, of course, Martha's got special problems now. Martha can't stand still. You know, there's, there's thousands, millions of red salmon swimming upstream, and they're all passing through the same place right in front of you, and she's going to move around all from right to left, walk 50 yards this way, 40 yards. It doesn't matter where you are. As far as the regulations go, something I was very curious about, and I, and I got kind of hyper-focused on this. Um, at the time, I didn't realize that the sockeye, um, also called red salmon, had gone up to um, nine before we got there. I Someone said to me right. that it had been three and that it had gone up to six not long before we got there. That really intrigued me, and and nothing against our Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. But my immediate thought was, how long would it take us in Louisiana to change a limit like that? It certainly wouldn't happen in one day like oh, it yeah. appears to happen. Yeah, it would have to go... Yeah, we'd have to right. pass uh, okay. legislature so, and committee and and you know the the commission and everything. Right. So wrap your right. It would have to go through the commission. That is correct. That's where it would have to start. And so I decided to find out how that happens. And I went to their website, um, adfgalaska.gov. Excellent, excellent website. Um, I really wish our Department of Wildlife and Fisheries would take a look at it and pattern our site after it. I, I'm just, I'm very, very impressed. I clicked on sport fishing regulations. Then you click on a map for the region that you're going to fish. But right up front, it tells you how to use this site, and it says, Notice, emergency orders always supersede the published regulations. Check for current emergency orders and news releases. Now, that's highlighted, so I clicked on it. And, it, I mean, it was simple as pie. Oh. I clicked on it. It goes to, my, goes to the region where we were, South Central. I clicked on that. And then the map is in uh, South Central regulatory areas. So I clicked the Upper Kenai River, and it took me right to a table. Date, area, summary, and action. And on July 26, it says Kenai River sockeye salmon bag limits increased. And the action is called a liberalization. And if you click on that, it takes you to an explanation in Saldatna, the bag limit increases, what they've done. And I uh, just want to read you this sentence. The, the Kenai River late run sockeye salmon management plan so they have a management plan specifically for that species, allows the department to increase bag limits for sockeye salmon when the late run of Kenai River sockeye salmon exceeds 2.3 million. That is an active link. I clicked on it, and it tells you, it shows you graph of how many fish from the 1st of July going up 
they did that by sonar. The sonar is in mile 19 of the Kenai River, and they picked that spot because there's nothing on the bottom to obstruct, obstruct the sonar, and there are very few other species that go through there to confuse the count. And they explain all of it plain and simple, and it's like, well, there's my answer. Oh, my goodness, and I have no doubt that lots of people use this website for their information, and then if you want to know more, they give you another link and explain exactly how the sonar works and all of that, I'm I'm very, very impressed. So it's not so much a regulation as just the way they operate. Just from the information on this website is very, very different than we are. But in fairness to Louisiana, comparing a fi- fishes that migrate to the fish we have here that, you know, don't get in one body of water at a certain time of year. I mean, they go in and out seasonally, and that's all weather dependent. That's water temperature dependent, and it is spawn mm-hmm. dependent. But it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. But from what I saw, they manage the resource very, very well. I could be wrong. I mean, of course, I you know, one week is not enough time to see everything and experience everything in their fisheries, but I was very impressed. Yeah, well, the thing with their their uh, management problem, as opposed to Louisiana, we can't inventory our fish as, as precisely and as accurately as they can. Sonar in a river where they've got to pass through, yeah, that's really accurate. Trying to judge right. how many speckled trout are out there in our vast estuary system is something totally different. There's one more well, issue I wanted to bring up, and I want to get Keith's comments on it. Okay. Go ahead. Well, what well, I wanted to talk LA about Creel was, uh, real- you know, L.A. Creel's good, and it's and it's real-time information, and it's an improvement, but it is still slow. It still takes time. Correct. The other, th- yeah, well, yeah, it's obvious. The, the The last thing I wanted to talk about, Wendy, you witnessed that with us when we went down to the beach on the Castle Off River, and we saw that the residents of Alaska, you got to be a resident, is allowed to use a gigantic dip net. You stand in the river with your net, and the fish swim into your net, you're allowed to keep 25 per household plus an extra 10 for every person who lives in that household. But that's only residents. And that's just an example. There's other benefits of being an Alaska resident. The question is, should Louisiana do that? Should we give a break to the (laughs) residents of Louisiana to take more, capitalize more on a public resource than people that come in from out of state? And, Keith, you've heard us talk about a lot of stuff here, so I want to get your comments on it because you didn't witness it firsthand, but you kind of got the idea now. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's it's a broad spectrum. You're talking about two different uh, two different areas as far as, like, like Wendy was saying, they, they could take uh, pictures from overhead and count things with, the, you know, it's like clear water. And I, I just think comparing it is um, – Maybe unfair to the department down here. We have a whole different uh, area to, to focus on down here, especially with how many how many folks we have uh, fishing. It's got to be more than than in Alaska, and Alaska is way more spread out. Uh, the clarity of the water, the muddy water. Um, but you know, taking some good points that that could help out uh, is what they're doing. They seem like they uh, there's less politics from what I'm hearing in their department as far as just making decisions based on the good of the uh the species i mean to make it make up it to nine 
that that's very refreshing. You you don't see anything going up in Louisiana. You know, it seems like everything they're cutting all the limits down here. But uh, sounds like sounds like uh, y'all 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 had an eye open experience. And as far as Wendy, you know, researching the uh, website, that that's all good. That's I mean maybe that's something they can take into account as far as uh, the emergency thing. I like that they just make a decision and go with it. You know. And they have what the authority are your thoughts to on do that. Pa- what are your thoughts on party limits and the snagging issue? I mean, if they allow you yeah, to snag yeah. the fish, you call it whatever you want, lining, flossing, whatever, it's snagging. If they allow you to do it at all, why does it have to be in the mouth? What difference does that make? Well, because I think the mouth holds true to more fishing. Fishing is the, the, the fish bites the lure, so that's the closest thing you could say. If the, if you hook it in the mouth, you you would be down to arguing while the fish the fish tried to eat my lore so i think that's that's where they're coming from uh evidently somewhere in the past they had folks uh, you know snagging too many fish let's say and and they had to put that into but you know that that brings up a question maybe that's you know our laws down here it's you know we have a five limit redfish per person does it is it truly per person or is it is it stated that it is party Don, you, you would know that. Oh, it's stated per person. It's definitely per yeah. person. But that's what I'm saying. It's not enforced as a per person. It's enforced as it's, a part. It's just so hard. Yeah, so it would be so hard to enforce that. So when y'all are fishing up there and well, you catch your limit, you are forced to stop fishing you ju- or you just keep fishing no, and, and release no, you, it? And release it, and release it, yeah. Okay. Much okay. to the chagrin of people who would like to have that fish to take home. Look, we got to take a break. We're a little bit behind on breaks. We're going to take a quick one. We'll be right back and pick it up right here. You listen to Hunt Fish Talk, Don Dubuque, Wendy Billiot, and Keith Lusher. Good Saturday morning. And on Hunt Fish Talk, we're discussing uh, Alaska regulations, management practices versus those of Louisiana. We're also going to talk very quickly about an issue uh, regarding deer hunters. Uh, beginning September 1st, and that's not far away, uh, there's going to be a new regulation modifying the use of deer urine attractant products. So we'll get to that. Uh, Louisiana Outdoor Rider Association, uh, that ain't going to change. We may have to put that off for another day. Uh, getting back to the resident benefits, Wendy, your and key thoughts on that. Uh, I, I love the idea. You know, they take care of their own first and give them special benefits, ways they can catch, extended limits for subsistence and sustenance. Uh, Would that not be a good idea in Louisiana? What do you think? I'm just not sure how we would implement that because we have a very um, negative connotation with the term gill netting, and that's actually what those huge dip nets were up in Alaska when we went to the Kosolov River for that for the last um, final days of the subsistence dip netting for the households, um, I know that I know that gill netting here was commercial, and, and I know the history of um, CCA changing all of that. Um, but how would we implement something like that? I mean, our our fish don't typically, you know, run upstream. Uh, against the current so that you know you can stand in a particular spot. And when we talk about those folks dip netting, I mean, they were they were lined up chest deep in that river with their chest waders and passively catching those salmon. And, and every few minutes someone was hauling one, hauling one to the bank. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't smoking hot action, but it was a nice 
passive way for families to get out there and catch fish for the household. I'm just not sure how we would implement subsistence fishing for Louisiana. Don, do you have any ideas? Well, well, I'll, I wasn't specifically saying that we would allow dip netting. Uh, not that you could go stand and buy you doulage with a net and catch speckled trout swimming through. What I'm so. talking about is the, it's the philosophy, the mentality of let's give the residents a break. Now, it would be done in other ways. Maybe they could relax the limit. They could relax season dates, uh, maybe times. It would be some kind of way that they would be given uh, an advantage because you're a resident, either in limit or method or time or, or dates or things like that. What do you think, Keith? Uh, do you think Alaska is cheating the tourists that visit because they give a preference and, and some discretion to the residents, or is it a good practice? Yeah, I think they could do what they want with their, with their own residents. Um, but I think the dip nets for the locals, the way you described it, it sounds more along the lines of providing for your family rather than uh, sport fishing. I don't know how long that's been in effect. It's, it sounds like it's it's decades since they've been doing this, and it just sounds like to me the way you said uh, you, you can, you're allowed to take a certain amount for your family, it sounds like that's more along the lines of uh, providing for your family. And I think that would be different down here as, as most of us. I mean, we, we eat our fish, but... I don't think too many people uh, rely solely on fish to, you know, to stock our freezers and to feed our families. And and that well, concept I, I don't know. These were around to stock their yeah. to stock these people, their um, fish for the winter for the whole year. These people didn't strike me as being poverty stricken <laughs> and were relying on this instead of eating cat food. Okay, they were pulling up in some pretty nice vehicles doing this. They this wasn't dragging just, them back you know, to the Alaska. Igloo, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. This was just Alaska taking care of its own, and I like that. They actually give every man, woman, and child a royalty check based on their oil production that nobody else gets except Alaska residents. So now I, don't that know. I, I just think it's behind. an attitude that of I taking care. <laughs> I could definitely get behind good, yeah. that. I think that I think yeah. though that people would argue that compared to other Gulf Coast states, we already have such, comparatively speaking, liberal limits, especially when it comes to speckled trout and redfish, that how much more would subsistence allow (laughs) us to take? And actually, subsistence fishing is a category in their licensing. It's, It's on their website as a separate type of fishing subsistence is listed individually so yes keith it's been in existence quite a while and i I think it's a great thing i just don't see how it would correlate to our species here and we already do have pretty pretty liberal limits yeah i think uh, well what you'd have to do is cut back on non-resident limits and give it to the others and to keep the balance you know, True. You'd have to give it to the preference of a resident. You know. Yeah, I'm no problem there's some with people that. Doing that are here. resentful. <laughs> there's some people that are resentful of tourists that come in the state and, and catch our fish and take them out. Yeah. Well, we discussed something along these lines when we were discussing. Uh, it was Plaquemines Parish, the the hunting thing uh, that they were allowing their exactly. own residents yeah. to. You know, right. so that's something along the lines of that. But yeah, I think I think they should be able to do whatever they want with their residents. That's their land and. You know, people get offended over anything, so oh well. 
I'm not offended. I'm a little jealous. I wanted to grab a net and get in that water, man. It looked like so much fun to me. Of course, Did Wendy, you, really? you know, she's, she's not so tough. I really do. I really <laughs> do. I would have been there All right, right we got to take you. a vi- – I know you would. You would. I don't doubt it. we got to take a quick break. we come back. We're going to talk about this deer urine products ban very quickly. You listen to Hunt Fish Talk on More Outdoors. I'm Don Dubuque. We're joined by Keith Lusher, North Shore Fishing Report, Wendy Billiot, the Bayou Woman, and you. Glad you joined us. We'll be right back. And we're going to put Alaska to bed for a while. And uh, if you want to get in on that Cajun invasion and go witness and see all of that wonderful stuff we saw and caught and brought home tons of fish, uh, go to my website, DonTheOutdoorsGuy.com, and we will have next year's dates up. I've already put some people in touch with Ralph. We know it's the last week in July, first week in August, and uh, he's got the price for the whole package deal for you. All right, we talk now about a new regulation that is getting ready to go into effect on September 1st. And I'll read the regulation as it was uh, posted. It is unlawful to use or possess scents or lures that contain natural deer urine or other bodily fluids while taking, attempting to take, attracting, or scouting wildlife except natural deer urine products produced by manufacturers or entities that are actively enrolled and participating in the Archery Trade Association Deer Protection Program, which have been tested using real-time quaking-induced conversion and certified that no detectable levels of chronic wasting disease are present and clearly labeled as such. In all of those legalese terms, what that means is if you're using old deer urine from last year, if you're using it and it has not passed inspection from this organization, it is illegal to put it out there. The question becomes, is this overkill for CWD or is it a practical application? It's going to cost some companies some money. They're going to lose the sale of what they've already had in stock. Uh, There's probably some added cost in putting it through this testing procedure. Is that worth it to eliminate the risk of CWD being spread through these attractants? And I've already seen some postings that people said, I'm so sick of hearing of CWD, fake news. What do you guys think, Wendy? Is this a good move, bad move, or does it really well, matter? Well, we, we talked about this uh, last year during deer season, and <clears throat> it was up in the air um, and, and up for debate at that time. I was... Um, against the use of it last year. Um, I did not realize that now there is testing for it because last year when we talked about all this, there was no information about testing the urine before, you know, it's it's bottled and produced and sold. Um, the QDMA says, you know, it's it's really highly transmitted through saliva and urine might not be as much as much of a, a transmission method, but the QDMA says it is still a possibility. Um, you know, now that it's regulated, it kind of changes changes the game. And so, what we're saying is, you can only use it if you buy the new and improved regulated products. Correct? That's my understanding. Correct. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, I don't agree with whoever says it's fake news because we also talked about the fact that there were four or five deer taken last winter who tested po- that tested positive for CWD on the western side of the Mississippi River. You know, very um, in in parts of Louisiana. 
so to me, that is really too close for comfort. So if banning the use of this um, urine as a lure would do anything to deter that spread and that transmission, then I would say, yes, it's a good thing. Keith? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, as far as the fake news, it, people don't care when it, when they're not affected. And as everybody knows, we haven't found, luckily, uh, any deer that, that have CWD in Louisiana. So I'm sure that will change soon, seem, seeming like it's it spreading pretty fast. But what they're doing here, I was originally against, and I did think it was overkill. But it looks like the uh, manufacturers are falling in, in line with this new testing. And um, it looks like this, this might be the law of the land as far as just getting them to change their ways to produce safe uh, urine attractant. And I don't think this is going to be a, a big problem. It seems like more and more companies are, are getting in line with this. So I think we're going to be okay with this. This seems like, you know, as far as synthetics, too, I mean, we, synthetics are still – uh, you can still use synthetics, and it looks like you're going to be able to use uh, the natural, too. What what does strike me is, is the way the department uh, banned it originally. I think it was a month ago, and then they came back to to letting it go. I was just kind of wondering. I wonder what made that happen. I don't know if you have any insight on that, Don. Well, you know, I don't know. It's... Um... <laughs> You know, we've got 26 <laughs> states, and everyone around us, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Texas, so it may be a futile attempt to keep it out. But I think just as an abundance of caution, why not? You know, if it, if it can be yeah. improved to where it can be used. The other thing is enforcement. How are they going to know what the average person mm-hmm. is putting out there on the ground, spraying it, and then coming back? You know, that, that's uh, – do they have an instant question. kit, the wildlife agents? Do you, do you use yeah. it, Don? I was going to say, how, much, yes, how many people use it, would you oh, say, in Louisiana? Gee, tremendous, tremendous number of people use it. It's, do it, you it put it on the very effective doing the rut. How do you implement it? Uh, they have all kind, they got all kind of ways. You can spray it on bushes. They've got wafers. They've got hanging uh, cotton okay. things that you can spray on. There's a number of ways to put it. Even got some bombs out there. All right, we got to go. Enjoy it, folks. Look forward to our next Hunt Fish Talk. That'll be coming up in the month of September. We're going to talk more about that LOWA. See you all next week right back here on More Outdoors. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.